Mrs. Long? Yes? We've found a baby girl for your adoption, but there are some things you need to know. She's in Siberia, and she was born with a rare condition. Her legs will need to be amputated. I know this is difficult to hear. Her life, it won't be easy. It might not be easy, but it'll be amazing. I can't wait to meet her. We believe there is hope and strength in all of us. Toyota, proud partner of Team USA. We found you a baby girl for adoption, but there's some things that you need to know. She's in Siberia, and she was born with a, a rare condition. Both of her legs will need to be amputated. I know this is difficult to hear. Her life, it won't be easy. Pause. Mrs. Long? It might not be easy, but it will be amazing. I can't wait to meet her. We're going to circle back to this story at the end of the sermon because there's actually much more to that story than the one minute that Toyota uh, captured. Uh, so we're going to come back to the story of Jessica Long and her parents, Steve and Beth Long. Uh, but I wanted to start here. What made that commercial so powerful for me, so powerful that I'm wiping tears away from my eyes, not because of the terrible game, but because of the, just how amazing that commercial was, was that as the person on the phone says, Mrs. Long, that baby girl is now an adult in a pool, and the, the present and the future are colliding in that moment. And Jessica is actually looking at who would become her mom, make this incredible decision. It's going to be amazing. We can't wait to meet her. And then Jessica in the pool breaks out in this beautiful smile. It is so powerful. Consider this. Every single person that you and I encounter on an ordinary day, every single person in that encounter, the present and the future collide. Think about that. Every mundane, ordinary encounter, in that encounter, the present and the future collide. I believe that we are called to be like Mrs. Long. I know I want to be like that. I want my life to make a difference. I want the future to be impacted by the way God uses me in the present, in all of my interactions, even the most mundane, ordinary ones. The good life is not the life that's most comfortable. Steve and Beth Long maybe could have chosen a life that would have been more comfortable. The good life is not the life that ends up being the most convenient, the most easy. The good life, the God life, is a life that is spent as a conduit of all of the blessings that God pours on us, a conduit of those blessings to other people. 
So the question before us today is, how do we live into this good life? How do we live into the God life? Because a life of comfort and a life of convenience, it is like a siren call that is always trying to reel us in. There's always this temptation to choose comfort and to choose convenience, sometimes at the expense of the the God life. Well, I think the the life that God calls us to live often comes down to to what we see. It comes down to our vision. What we see, how we see, what we do with what we see. Mrs. Long didn't just see a baby with a rare condition as a hardship or an inconvenience to be avoided. She saw this as an opportunity. An opportunity to make a difference to give this child a chance because the child was worthy of a chance. On this Sunday, we celebrate what we call the sanctity of human life. And what it does is it forces all of us to consider our vision, consider what we see and and how we see. What do you see if, if in fact we see it all because sometimes we don't see certain people? What do you see when you see the vulnerable, and the oppressed, and the broken, and the wounded, and the marginalized, and the outcast people of this world. Because if you're going to read the Gospels, what you're going to find out is that Jesus had amazing vision, especially with those people. It was almost as if he came looking specifically for those people. It's not easy. Here's what's easy. It's easy to see the the downtrodden, quote, downtrodden, as a drain on the system. It's easy to see the poor as a problem. Maybe it needs to be tucked away. We're good at that. It's easy to see the fetus as an inconvenience to be aborted. It's easy to see that immigrant hoping for a better life as a political talking point. It's easy to see that elderly person as one with just very little to offer. It's easy to see that foreigner as someone who somehow is less than human. It's easy to see that minority as a caricature or as a stereotype. It's easy to see people whose sin may be different than ours as sinners with a big old capital S, while we see ourselves as sinners with a wee little S. Sanctity of Life Sunday is all about the intrinsic, God-given dignity of every human being, of every human being in the womb and out of the womb. It is utter hypocrisy to be so vehement about the dignity of every human life while they are in the womb and then be silent or worse, to malign the dignity of those same lives after they're born. And it is utter hypocrisy to be so pro-human rights and pro-liberty and yet deny the right of life to those who are not yet born. Jesus was pro-life in every respect. 
In every respect, Jesus was, was pro-life. It is probably the, the one thing more than anything else that drew people to Jesus. It's the reason that Christianity swept across the land like a, a California wildfire. It's the thing today that, that continues to draw people to Jesus. People, when they get to know Jesus, they can't help but love him because Jesus can't help but love people. That's worth saying again. Jesus, when people get to know Jesus, they can't help but be drawn to him because he's drawn to people especially those people who find themselves on the outside looking in. So we're going to take a, a quick spin, and the, the sermon's going to be a little bit shorter today because I want to come back to the story of Jessica Long. But we're going to take a, a quick spin through some of the Gospels where we're going to see Jesus in action. We're going to see how he sees and who he sees and what he does with what he sees. We're going to begin in Matthew 4, verse 23, which just offers kind of this this broad overview of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Immense crowds from all over the land followed Jesus. How did one man make such a difference? Was it because Jesus was such a, a good teacher and a powerful preacher? I think that had something to do with it, but only something to do with it. I think it was because he was such a, a lover of people. The world was not accustomed to such love, especially and sadly from those in positions of religious authority. The world was accustomed to judgment, accustomed to a religion of fear, accustomed to intimidation, in a world where the, the downtrodden were pushed to the shadows, Jesus turned on the lights. Nobody was beneath him. Nobody was unworthy of his time or his attention. It didn't matter if they were a Jew or a Samaritan. It didn't matter the color of their skin. It didn't matter if they were a man or a woman. It didn't matter if they were a child or an adult, an insider or an outsider. It didn't matter if they were a saint or a sinner. What Jesus knew was that every man, every woman, every child, no matter what label they, they bore, every one of them was created in the image of God, and he knew that because he was involved in that. Yes, this is one that I knit together. Think about that. As he interacted with people in the present, he was also interacting with a creation that he had a hand in making. This was somebody that I knit together. 
So let's just take a quick spin. The, the woman caught in adultery. What did the Pharisees see when they saw her? When they looked at this woman, I think what they saw was a case study. They saw a theological talking point. They saw an opportunity to corner Jesus. What did Jesus see? He saw a woman. He saw a woman very much in need of grace and mercy, a woman in need of forgiveness, a woman in need of dignity, a woman in need of correction, a woman in need of transformation. How about the Samaritan woman at the well? What did the disciples see when they came back from town and they found Jesus talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman with a checkered past? They couldn't believe their eyes. But you know what we read in John 4? They, none of them said a thing. None of them asked Jesus, why are you talking to her? Instead, they took note. They observed. This is what it means to love God. This is what it means to love our neighbor. This is what it means to be on mission, to seek and save the lost. This is what God is calling us to. How about the little children? I love the story. The little children longing to see Jesus. Some disciples saw them as a disruption, keeping Jesus from the more important things, a waste of valuable time and, and energy. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw the present and the future collide. In this little interaction, this little opportunity to bless children, bless the parents of the children. Lives that maybe would be forever changed because of this brief encounter. How about Levi the tax collector, sitting behind his, his tax booth? The people of the day saw a, a traitor, a swindler, one to be despised. Jesus looked at Levi and saw a future disciple, one who would actually go on to write the first book of the New Testament. He saw Matthew. The blind, the lame, the, the paralyzed, the man on the mat lowered through the roof. Many just saw a tragic soul. How sad. A man, perhaps, who was punished because of something he had done, something that maybe his parents had done. Jesus actually saw a man and some friends of great faith. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Story after story after story, page after page, you cannot read a page of the Gospels and not see Jesus interacting with someone who was vulnerable, marginalized, outcast, despised. Jesus was drawn to those people. Nobody questions the sanctity of life of those whose, whose life seems to be all together. We just kind of take that for granted. Of course they have value. Of course they have dignity. They're a, a person of, of you know, uh, repute. What made Jesus so radical is that he treated those at the bottom of the social ladder with that same dignity and value. There's a, a passage of Scripture that I've been chewing on recently. It comes from Isaiah 42. And in Isaiah 42, it's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Uh, and so it gives us a clue as to how is this Messiah going to show up in this world? And, and what is it that we should be looking for? 
Listen to these words from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Huh, I wonder what that means. He will not shout or, or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. His mission is that of justice, but he's not going to advance that mission through the typical ways. It's not going to be by trying to outshout his opponents. He's not going to try and bully his mission forward. It's not going to be trying to impose his will by some show of force. Friends, there, there's a narrative today among some Christian circles that, that we are under attack. And by we, I'm not sure what it means, if it means we Christians or if it means we Americans. Sometimes that all gets conflated together. But this camp is banging the drum that, that we need to fight back. We need to essentially go to war. You saw this on January 6th. You saw people storming the Capitol carrying posters that says, Jesus saves. I saw one with a Christian flag. Friends, this is not the way of Jesus. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Well, then exactly how is he going to advance his mission? How is he going to accomplish this? Well, Isaiah continues. Listen to this. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed, a smoldering wick. You know who that is? It's the poor. It's the oppressed. The captives. Those who sit in darkness. Those who are denied justice. The wounded, the broken, the blind, the lame, the marginalized, the outcast. A bruised reed, he's not going to break. A smoldering wick, he's not going to snuff out. Why? Well, it's because of the sanctity of human life. Jesus brought with him a revolution. Make no mistake, he brought a revolution, but it wasn't a revolutionary war. It was a revolution grounded in love. And the amazing thing is it worked. It worked. It changed the world. It continues to change the world. Through Isaiah, after describing the nature of the Savior, do you know what God does? He turns to us. And he gives us a charge. I wonder what our charge is going to be. Is it going to reflect the same charge as the, the charge the Savior is going to take? You bet. This is what the God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives the breath to its people and life to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Jesus was good news for, for smoldering wicks and bruised reeds. And our call as followers of Jesus continues to be good news for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Every man, 
every woman, every child created in the image of God, worthy of love. And so now I want to circle back to the the story of Beth and Sue, Beth and Steve Long and Jessica Long. When I saw that commercial, I thought there's got to be more to this story. Beth and Steve, they've got to be believers. Enjoy this. It's pretty intense because you're sitting there and they're calling each person and they just somehow disappear through this walkway. And then they call your name and you walk out and it's this beautiful like clean pool. There's just 25,000 people and you can hear the roar. My heart rate is starting to pick up. All of Team USA is cheering for me. I take off my legs, I take off my warm-up jacket and I get up to, to the block. I clap three times. I hope it somewhat intimidates the rest of the competitors a little bit. The official says, take your mark. Take your mark. Go. The crowd goes wild once I'm mid-air. And I hold my streamline, I pick my head up, and I just start to race. A lot of people are changing positions. I feel like I need to breathe because I'm gasping for air, but I know if I take that breath, it's going to affect my race. I always know that at the start, I'm going to be behind. Seconds matter. Tenths of a second matter. I know that I can catch up coming in for the wall. This is when the entire race comes down to the ending. But I just put my head down, and then all I hear is just this, like, quiet peace. When I was born, I was put up for adoption by a young 16-year-old Russian girl. And due to a birth defect, um, she just wasn't able to care for me. During this time uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, there was a family, Steve and Beth Long. They went to a church meeting and they saw a picture of me and they were told that this little Russian girl has leg deformities and um, really needed to be adopted. And my mom just said, you know, we, we knew we, you were the child that God wanted us to adopt. So they decided to adopt me and another little boy from Russia. Went to the orphanage and, and got us both. Right away, they took me to see a specialist about my legs. And with what I was born with, um, it's called fibular hemimelia. So basically means I was missing all the bones in my lower legs. I did have a foot with three toes um, that they decided to amputate six months after I was adopted. So I could be fitted in these little prosthetic legs and learn to walk just like everyone else. When I think back on my childhood, I didn't feel adopted. I just knew I was angry angry that I didn't have legs. Maybe that's why my birth mom didn't want me, because I didn't look like a normal person. I was missing half of my body. I felt like such a burden to my parents in Baltimore, you know, because every time I grew, I had to get a surgery. I had to get the bone cut back. And that was excruciating. I can't think of a single childhood memory that, you know, we weren't always at church or with our church community. And what I heard a lot of is that God, God made me this way and God always had a plan for me, and God loves me, and I didn't like it. I knew I didn't like it. I knew I didn't want anything to do with this God that made me this way. To top it all off, I was born on leap year. So all of my life, the calendar would skip me every four years um, before I had an actual birthday, February 29th. And I think in my head as a little girl that just solidified how I felt about myself, is that I was non-existent. It didn't seem fair, because I didn't, I don't think I knew what I did wrong to have to keep going back in for surgery. I didn't think I could even cry in front of my parents, because I thought if I cried, that somehow they would send me back to Russia. No one 
could help me. And I just hurt all the time. So eventually, I, I found sport and I found that I was really good at sports. I found that swimming, I excelled in swimming. And when I first joined a swim team, I was 10 years old and I was the only disabled swimmer on the team. Most people didn't know I was missing my legs until I got out of the pool. And I kept going back because honestly, I just liked beating these girls with legs. And it started to fulfill something in me, just earning love. Is it too good to be true? I want this so much, but don't know if I can trust you. In my first race, I turn and breathe to my competitor from Israel. And I remember saying, I did not come here to get second. And we touched the wall and I had just won my first Paralympic gold medal as a little 12 year old. And I was the youngest to ever go, the youngest to ever win a gold medal. And I think that that was the start of it. I started getting sponsorships and winning awards. I signed a deal with Nike and I'm in Sports Illustrated and I'm getting commercials. And I wanted to be perfect in everything that I did. There was one year I had 18 world record breaking performances and I didn't slow down. Reached the next gold medal, set the next world record. That's where my worth was. My worth was in swimming. My identity was swimming. But at the same time, I was just broken and sad a lot. I had developed an eating disorder, really pulled away from my relationships, my family, and I realized that I had no control over my life. One summer night, I was at my Friday night youth group Bible study, and I'm sitting there, and I just think, I just couldn't do it alone anymore. I just got up, and I, I made the walk to the front, and I found this woman, and I just said, you know, I, I wanna give God my whole heart for once. And I prayed with her, and as soon as I prayed, it was the first time in my entire life that I felt enough. And then I was actually a part of God's family for once. And it's crazy, right? Because it doesn't just get easier. Um, I just realized that God was prepping my heart for what was about to come. I'm in London at the games. I found out that they had found my birth family over in Russia. All of a sudden, we were approached by NBC, asking if I wanted to go back to Russia to meet my birth mom for the first time. Meeting my family, my birth mom, was something I dreamed of my entire life. So I decided to do that, and I took my little sister Hannah with me. It hit me all of a sudden, as soon as we landed in Russia, that maybe my birth family didn't want to see me. I felt relief, scared. Why, why did I come here? Why did I do this? And then we took an 18-hour train ride, 18 hours, and everything is covered in snow. I just kept reapplying lipstick and makeup. And Hannah um, said she didn't even put the lid on the lipstick because she was like, you just were so nervous. You just kept applying. And I think it was just because I wanted to present myself so perfectly yet again. So we pull up in front of their little purple house and I took my sister's hand and we walked together on the, the snowy, icy sidewalk. And you could hear my birth mom, Natalia, and my, my birth father were crying. Like they were, you could just hear, you could hear tears. They come out of the back door and my birth mom, I mean, she's just burst, I mean, just crying, sobbing. She just kept saying, my, my Lena, I think she was saying my daughter, but she's crying, my birth father's crying. I was starting to cry and I was like, I don't wanna cry. 
And something she just kept saying was that she couldn't forgive herself for giving me up for adoption. And I think if I had not accepted Christ as my savior, I don't think I would have forgiven her either. But it was in that moment that I realized that, you know, God has forgiven me my, my whole life. And I did, I forgave my mom. You know, I wasn't upset with her. And it was this moment that I'd been, I'd been angry my entire life. You know, I didn't feel worthy, I didn't feel enough, that I just realized, oh my gosh, like God really had had a plan this entire time. Coming home after Russia, it definitely, um, it was a heart change, but it also opened up a lot of other questions and questions that I had to really come to terms and talk to God about, you know? Um, questions and that I thought I already had answered. And I realized that it's okay to have those questions. It, it, it's okay to talk to God about it. You know, since accepting Christ as my savior, I don't have to just go to God and, and have it all together. He knows that I don't have it all together. And I think it's something I still fight. You know, I still fight that feeling of being in control. And I am constantly reminded every day that I need to give it to God. Every day when I put on these two prosthetic legs that are heavy and they still hurt me, my legs still cause me pain. And I think it's honestly this really cool, beautiful reminder that I can't do it on my own. As determined as I am, I just can't. Coming in for the wall, this is when the entire race comes down to the ending. But I just put my head down and just pictured God almost racing alongside with me when I swim, like he's just there. And when practices get tough or races have been hard, I just call on to him. Like, God, like, this is hard. This is really hard. And I just feel, you know, just keep trying, Jess. Like, I'm here with you. My name is Jessica Long, and I am second. <laughs>